I'd like to begin by welcoming you and just saying Happy New Year. And then what I'll do is read the scripture for this morning, then pray, and then we'll begin. We're looking at the theme of light this morning. So I begin by reading out of the Gospel of John these words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Christ was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Christ was life, and that life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And then this word from the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, speaking to his disciples. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before people in such a way that they see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we'd like to thank you for a new year and the opportunity to look ahead and offer ourselves to you and invite you to speak to us in order that we might enter most fully into the adventure that is following you. We pray, Father, that you would shape us as a community to be people of hope in this season, even in this time together this morning. We'll thank you for that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We spend usually the first Sunday of the year like this uh, talking a little bit about vision, where we're headed. I don't have anything specific by way of vision, but I want to conceptually share with you the importance of something that God has laid on my heart, our calling to be people of light in our city and in our world. And so to do that, I'll remind you at the outset that light is a major theme in the Bible. Uh, In the very beginning, Genesis chapter one, everything was dark. And then the very first word from God, the first word from God was what? Let there be, let's do that again. Let there be, yeah. And so God is wanting light to come, and whenever light arrives, light displaces darkness. And then God creates, as we know, the greater and lesser lights. And then when, when there's a tabernacle, as Israel is wandering through the wilderness, there's an outer tabernacle that has a door, but the, in the inner tabernacle, there are no windows, and it, is, it would be totally dark in the holy place were it not for the candle stand. And then God says, this is your responsibility, Always make sure, the priests always make sure that the light is shining so that there is forever this picture of the power of light to overcome darkness, right? And so you see that in the tabernacle. And then as Israel is wandering around in the wilderness, God provides a cloud to guide them by day and a fire of light uh, by night. And then Jesus becomes a prophecy regarding light in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, where it says the people who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. And then this, this notion of light becomes a picture of receiving revelation from God. In Psalm 119, verse 105, uh, David says, your word, revelation from you, God, is a lamp to my feet. In other words, I don't know which way to turn unless I have light. And any of you in the room who've been in very dark places know that when it begins to get dark, there's a, there's a visceral longing, is there not, for light. Like if we're trying to do something and it's dark, we, we can't do it. A f- couple of years ago, I think it was two years ago, we had a power outage where we lived in the mountains for five days. It, it, was, it began before Christmas and ended, I believe, the day after Christmas. And so for five days, no electricity. Now, I wasn't worried because I have a little thing 
to charge my phone and that's all I needed, I'm fine. I don't have a generator and I don't want one. I kind of think it's kind of fun when, when we lose light. We have wood heat, so we're not cold. We have uh, a camp stove, so we're not hungry. All is good. However, this is what we learned in that five-day thing. Like it happens at the shortest, uh, uh, the longest nights of the year, the shortest daylight. And about 2.30 in the afternoon, Donna and I, my wife, we would be like this. We got to light the candles. Like you just feel it. We got to light the candles because in just a few minutes, and this is 2.30 in the afternoon, in a few minutes it's going to be dark. And so we'd scurry around and we'd light, we had all these candles all over the place. It's actually beautiful. And the, the, the darkness arrives and we're like this, no problem, let the darkness come. We have light, but only because as we felt the impending darkness, we, we like sought the light. Do you see? And the metaphor is particularly appropriate these days because I would say culturally, at least nationally, if not globally, we're scrambling for candles. Like we feel viscerally that darkness is upon us. We feel it because there is so much in our world that is dark, right? The world feels dark. Me too is dark. Yemen is dark. Syria is dark. Politics is dark. Homelessness on the rise is dark. Lack of access to clean water or healthcare or education is dark. Racism is dark. Opioid addiction is dark. Hidden addictions are dark. Body image issues are dark. There's anxiety is dark. God is calling us not to darkness but to light. But we live in a world where it feels darker and darker and darker. And a major shift that we see in our culture is no longer is the church viewed as kind of this bastion of light in the midst of darkness. In other words, now the church is not light in people's minds, but the church actually is associated often with darkness. This is a huge problem. And my hope is that we can lean into that, name it, and change it as a church. So uh, what we're going to do this morning is just talk a little bit about the theology of light and then see that Christ is light intensified. Third, a religious problem, institutional Christianity is often guilty of perpetuating darkness rather than light. And then finally, what do we do about it? So let's just look at these things, beginning with a theology of light. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, Abraham, follow me, leave your land, your, and your land is polytheistic, totally different gods, follow me now, Jehovah, this kind of, for Abraham, new God. This monotheistic, this one God, I'm going to ask you to follow me, obey my revelation, go where I tell you to go, I'll establish you in a land, and then in that land I will bless you, and then watch this, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham, when you listen to me, says God, and follow my ways, I will create in your nation a narrative that contrasts with all surrounding nations. In all the other surrounding nations, humans played the role of slaves to warring gods. In this narrative, we're creating God's image. We're not expendable. We're, we're, we're dignified. God has made us, Psalm 8, a little lower than the angels. We're crowned with glory and honor. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139. This narrative, in other words, is profoundly different, beginning with who you are, and then, and then flowing out from there to see how we will relate with each other. I will create, says God, a culture that is dramatically different and hope and life-giving in contrast to everything around. Many of us have, have 
struggles kind of reading the Old Testament, right? Because we read the Old Testament at times and we come to stuff and we go, what's up with slavery in the Old Testament? What's up with women being treated in a certain way? What's up, like, wh like why is God doing it this way? The best analogy I can use is, uh, I say this to the staff here at Bethany, I say, you know what, if you're leading and nobody's following, you're not leading. Do you know what I mean by that? And so God, in, in God's revelation of God's character, moves the ball down the field in tiny little two-yard gains, like the Seahawk running game last night, <laughs> right? Just a little short. Like, and so now, what we see here is movement, and this is very different than all the surrounding nations, even though now, 2,000 years later, we look at it and we go, man, what's up with that? For example, uh, slaves in the Bible are released after six years. Exodus 21, verse two. Deuteronomy 15, verse 12. In no other culture were slaves ever released. Further, any form of sexual intimacy in the Old Testament outside the covenant of marriage was forbidden, so it was forbidden to use slaves for sex. Again, unique to Israel compared to all other nations. Can you see that this moves the ball down the field a little bit, right? Oh, still slavery, but slaves dignified. Orphans, widows, and immigrants in every other culture were cast out and having no social safety net, they were left to fend for themselves, not in Israel. Deuteronomy 14.29 says this, the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the traveler, and the fatherless, and the widow, and those who are within your towns, who are in these categories, all of them, in other words, fatherless, widow, orphan, immigrant, they will all come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. In other words, God is ensuring that orphans and widows and, and immigrants and slaves receive justice. He shows love to foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing, clothing Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18. So this is moving the ball down the field. In every other culture, like if you lose your social safety net, you're cut off, not in God's economy. Everyone is cared for. Everyone is a place at the table. I love that. Third, uh, in a culture, in, in every other culture, there's striving, and in God's culture, there's rest. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 10. On the seventh day, don't do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your servants, your slaves, nor animals, nor even foreigners residing in your town. One day a week, Everyone rests and with empty hands receives from God. How awesome would that be if that were the world in which we lived? Even, even animals, like your chickens, get to rest on the, on the seventh day, right? So slaves released, orphans, widows, immigrants cared for, a rhythm of work and rest. The land rests every seventh year so the topsoil isn't depleted. And every 50th year, the year of Jubilee, debts are forgiven, it's a year of release from indebtedness, Leviticus chapter 25, and all types of bondage, Leviticus 25, verses 39 to 55. All prisoners and captives set free. All slaves released. Listen to this. All debts forgiven. All property returned to original owners. In addition, all labor ceases for an entire year for everyone, and those bound by labor contracts were released from them. One of the benefits of the Jubilee was the land and the people were able to rest and that provided restoration, just as we just spoke of with regard to Sabbath, or sabbatical. And another benefit was this prevented 
the endless transfer of wealth upward to the rich because every 50 years, property returned to the original owner. So there's a perpetual middle class. Now, if you're thinking about this politically or economically, I know what's going on in your mind. This will never work. Forget about it. Understand the ideal. Do you understand here? God is saying, I'm calling you to live differently so that surrounding nations will look and say, wow, who knew? <laughs> and that's exactly what happened in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. The queen of Sheba, and she's not Jewish because she's the queen of Sheba, not Israel, right? So the queen of Sheba, she comes to visit Solomon. She has questions. She brings gifts. Solomon's the king of Israel. He's built a temple. Uh, and now I'm paraphrasing, but this is, what, this is what she says. She said, before I came, here's Solomon sitting in front row, blue shirt. Before I came, I heard about your wisdom from, others, from other people. People said, you gotta go talk to Solomon. He's very wise. I heard about your country. I heard about the peace. I heard about the justice. I heard about the way that the poor are cared for. I heard about it. And this is what she said, I didn't believe half of it, right? So I heard that you were this amazing, and I came expecting you to be this amazing. And then this is what she says, though I only believed half, the half wasn't told me. So if you do the math, this is what she's saying. I thought you'd be this amazing. I was told you'd be this amazing. Now that I'm here, and I see your gardens, and I see your servants, and I see your generosity, and I see your justice, and I see your care for the poor, and I see your peace, and I see your joy, and I see your celebrations, and I see how you care for the land. Now that I've seen it all, the half wasn't told me. In other words, you're not this good, you're this good. Does this make sense? And here's her concluding statement. Blessed be the Lord. In other words, this is what she's saying. I now know who the true God is. Why? Oh, I heard this awesome sermon at Bethany Community Church. Nope, wrong. <laughs> I now know who the true God is. Why? Because the people of God embodied light. That's it. And when you embody light, that is the best evangelism. This is our calling as a community. It's evangelism's finest hour, I believe, the Queen of Sheba. Because it's the people of God displaying God's light and it's the light of justice, the light of caring for the poor and marginalized, the light of forgiving debts, the light of releasing slaves, the light of the rhythm of work and rest, the light of all people created in God's image. When that light shines, people are drawn like a moth to flame. People want meaning. People want beauty. People want justice. That's our calling. And when it, back in the early church, it was, it was the church that went in to care for the dying, offering hospice care, when there was a plague, and they did so at risk of their own lives. Some people contracted the plague and died, but they said, we mustn't let people die alone. Jesus wouldn't do that. And we're the presence of Christ, so we go in. And we, and we, and we gather kids who are tossed on trash heaps, abandoned babies, and we bring them into our home, and we adopt, and we provide foster care, and we reach across the aisle, and we cross, we cross social divides. This is who we are. That's what it means to be light. And when the light shines, it's It's beautiful. That's the thing to see. I want to just share with you a note that we got from Bagley Elementary School across the street here a little bit earlier this year. And the context is not really important right now, but they had written us, they wanted some space. And 
We'd offered space. This is what they write. Your church has a great reputation for community support and authentic application of your beliefs and values. And I just wanted to know that your quick and generous response to our need was appreciated. We're living in a time when personal applications of faith, especially institutional applications of faith and belief, are, and then I love, this is so understated, are sometimes disappointing. That's what she says. <laughs> the sense of community and connection to those in need in your community is apparent in your actions as a church. And that makes a difference in both the optimism and sense of credibility that is felt in response to your authentic actions and choices. When the light shines, it's attractive. Do you see? So, in the Old Testament, God develops this theology of light, moves the ball down the field. It's kind of a running game, two yards at a time. Then, in the New Testament, it's Tyler Lockett, 80-yard pass, right? Because Jesus shows up, and Hebrews chapter 1 says that Christ is the fullest expression of God's character. Like, you can't get any clearer than Jesus. And Jesus' mission statement articulated in Luke on the first day of his public ministry is very clear. Jesus said, I've come to set the captive free. I've come to heal every disease. I've come to end all oppression. This is my reign. This is the kingdom of God. This is my character. We need to grasp this and cling to this. The kingdom of God is not about us clinging to our rights. It's not about nationalism. It's not about upward mobility. It's not about personal peace and prosperity. It's about radical generosity and service and inclusion, which is why Jesus was charged by religious leaders of violating holiness laws by hanging out with sinners. When Jesus engages the woman at the well, he's showing us the nature of the kingdom of God and how contrary it is to prevailing religious uh, norms. In other words, here's Jesus with uh, a Samaritan woman. A, Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. B, men have no dealing with women. C, the righteous have no dealing with people who have failed marriages, which is exactly this woman. The righteous have no dealing with people who have messed up sexual ethics uh, or... or people who voted differently than you, or people of a different race, or people of a different class, or people of a different education. We separate and separate and tribalize and polarize, and Jesus' engagement with this woman at the well bursts every dividing wall and says this, Christ is the starting point of fellowship, and watch this, Christ plus nothing. Not Christ plus being a Gentile, not Christ plus being righteous, not Christ plus being politically a certain way, Christ, period. I spoke at a retreat years ago in San Antonio, Texas. And when I showed up, everybody's wearing the same t-shirt. And I find that annoying. It's like groupthink, right? So everybody got a shirt at the retreat and they're all wearing the same shirt. And the shirt is a white t-shirt with big red letters, uh, just says Jesus with a period. And I go, what's that about? And they go, it's our mission statement as a church. I go, oh, really? That's kind of meaningless? I'm not sure. Help me understand. Well, here's the thing. In a world where people gather on the basis of Jesus plus ethics, Jesus plus politics, Jesus plus uh, certain doctrines, we gather on the basis of Jesus plus nothing. Jesus, period. Boom. That's good. I wish I had a shirt. (laughs) I would have worn it this morning, right? Jesus, period. 
So what Jesus did is he took the ministry that God had begun in the Old Testament and he intensified it and clarified it. And he clarified it not only by his example when he hangs out with, you know, what are called sinners and tax collectors and Gentiles and all that stuff, but he clarifies it by his teaching as well. He moves the ball down the field. You've heard it said in the Old Testament, love your friends, hate your enemies. I say to you, love your enemies. That's the gospel. That's what it means for light to shine. You've heard it said, don't murder. I say, stop gossiping. Stop being angry at people. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, purify your heart. Watch your thought life. We're, deal from the inside out. I, when Jesus says, but I say to you, he's intensifying and clarifying what it means to be light. And then Jesus essentially tells his followers the same thing that God said to Abraham in Genesis 12. God said in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless nations through you. Now, here's what Jesus says to, to you and I. This is what he says. Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Not after your devotional life and after you come to Jesus and after you've been with Jesus 10 years and if you vote right and think right and behave right, you'll be light. No, here's Jesus. Do you know me? You are light. Boom, done. People are deciding who Jesus is based on you, based on me, based on us. People are driving by right now making determinations about eternal destiny because they're deciding who Jesus is based on our life together. Wow. That's a big deal. You are the light. So let your light shine and make sure that your light is shining with a measure of accuracy so that people see the real Jesus, not the national Jesus, not the political Jesus, not the single issue Jesus. So Jesus calls us to be light, which leads us to the articulation of really what is a religious problem through, all through history. Because you go on and you discover that the core, when you look back at Israel, they were called to bless, called to be light. Israel's failure happened because their focus shifted away from the things that matter the most. Instead of, instead of focusing on justice and mercy, Micah 6.8 stuff, right? What does God want? Justice and mercy. And walking with God. Instead of focusing on that, which would entail care for immigrants, rhythm of work and rest, justice, nobody falling through the safety net. Instead, the priesthood began focusing on making sure that the outward forms of religion were maintained above all else. And so uh, religious experts began arguing internally about how best to perpetuate the forms of religion, and the forms became the most important thing. And what happened, well, as soon as the forms are the most important thing, then what drifts away is the, is the stuff that is actually the most important stuff. Does that make sense? Like I'm so fixated here, I'm not, only not I'm, not just not, I'm not noticing that I'm drifting away. And that's what happened because when the prophet Amos comes on the scene, uh, he basically says in Amos 5, look, uh, you're, you're worshiping, but I don't care. I'm not impressed with your gathering. We, I mean, we think what we do here, this is church. This isn't, this is, God is not impressed with our gatherings. He says, I'm not impressed with your gathering. I'm not impressed with your offerings. And by the way, no offense, Eric, I'm not impressed with your music. That's what he says. <laughs> or your preaching. Like, oh, you want to impress me? Here's, here's the thing. Amos 5.21, let justice roll down like waters. Like, as soon as you began to treat every person driving by and every person of a different color than you and every person of a different sexual identity than you as someone made in the image of God, now you begin to look like Jesus. And when you begin to look like Jesus, that's your calling right there. 
So start looking like Jesus. Don't think that because you gather and give and sing, you look like Jesus. It's, it's, it's the stuff we do beyond these walls that constitutes our calling to be the light of the world. And how this played out in the end is seen in Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. Ezekiel writes, just before Israel is destroyed, and this is what Ezekiel says. This is Jerusalem. I've set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. We've already seen this. Remember the Queen of Sheba? She comes and visits. At the center. Um, and, then, and then, but she, Israel, has rebelled against my ordinances more than the nations around. And, and so he, this is... This is Ezekiel's complaint. Look, Israel, I wanted you to be here shining as light so that other nations would see and be drawn, right? And instead, Israel, though you gather, though you sing, you're actually living not like the nations. What? Worse than the nations. You're worse than the nations. So that now people drive by in a darkening world, dark with terror, dark with economic uncertainty, dark with classism, dark with racism, dark, dark with fear, dark with addictions, dark with body image issues, people drive by and they say, man, I don't know where the truth is, I don't know where the light is, but I know where it isn't, in there. <laughs> like, why would people say that? Look, the Queen of Sheba said, I know who the true God is, not because you're preaching, not because of, of your words, but because your lifestyle as a nation has woven together a cord of justice and mercy and beauty and hope and peace and generosity. I want to worship that God. And I'm just telling you, we don't live in 1 Kings 10. We live in Ezekiel 5. We live in a season when people say, we're not sure who the true God is, but we know one thing. Uh, we don't want to worship with those people, evangelicals. Young generations are fleeing from the church. There's a thousand reasons. But the main point is this. There's nothing attractive, let alone compelling. Why is this? Because Christianity has developed a reputation for pedophilia, as has happened. For being anti-science, as has happened. For being complicit in racism or sexism or colonialism, as has happened. For treating creation with disdain, as has happened. For treating immigrants and Muslims and, and other people groups as the enemy, rather than people made in God's image, as has happened. For being materialistic or nationalistic or individualistic as the surrounding culture and thus developing the same anxieties and addictions as the culture, we have nothing to offer. It's not surprising people drive by. You guys know uh, that years ago, I think I told you this, years ago, I was so ashamed of being a pastor that I wouldn't tell people when I traveled that I was a pastor. I would say, I'm a teacher which is kind of true. And then they'd say, oh, what do you teach? And I'd say ancient literature, which is also kind of true. <laughs> and then they'd say, oh, uh, where do you teach? And I'd say, oh, you know, various places, which is also true. But I, you know, like I never said I'm a pastor. And then I got to this point several years ago, shortly after coming here, where I was like this, you know what, rather than be ashamed of the word, let's place the word out there and, and redefine it by our life. Does that make sense? So then I, now I start telling people, I always tell people on a plane, oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Now I'm here to report to you that overwhelmingly my seatmates say this. First of all, they don't say this. Oh, you're a pastor? I hate you and I hate Jesus. No one says that. No one. This is what I hear all, almost all the time. This is what I hear. Oh, yeah, Jesus. Jesus, cool. I love Jesus. 
Jesus, man, the bee's knees if it's an old guy. Other sayings if it's new, right? Man, yeah, Jesus. Here's the thing, though. I don't want anything to do with your churches. And then when I ask why, it's that list, that laundry list I just gave you. Yeah, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and I have nine cousins, victims of pedophilia. True story. Oh, yeah, yeah. I grew up in a church where I was, I was forced to choose between um, science and faith because they were antagonistic. I grew up in a church where no one cared about uh, the earth. I'm done. I grew up in a church that was racist. I grew up in a church where I was told if I didn't vote a certain way, I'm not a Christian. I'm done. And you know what fries me? People are, people are rejecting Christ, and they're not rejecting Christ. They're rejecting this institutional thing that we've created that misrepresents Christ. Ah! <laughs> it makes me crazy. Because Jesus is so beautiful. We got to fix it. And that brings me to the conclusion. The vision. You're the light. People are deciding what God is like based on your life, based on our life, then let's make sure the light is shining accurately. This is what I wrote in my diary in December. Some of you heard this, many haven't. What if we make it our goal to reframe Seattle's understanding of Christianity so that we move away from its reputation as wed to politics and vocal of polarized infighting and sexism? What if instead we let our light shine so that through intentional living and teaching and community service, we openly and publicly declare that Christ is inviting us to ways that are not of this world? That the paradigms of consumerism and nationalism and political posturing and competition are leaving us hollow and hungry for peace and meaning and joy? And that individualism is leaving us isolated and afraid and anxious. And the goodness of the gospel is God's kingdom offers a different way, a better way, the way of the lion lying down with the lamb. The way not of consumerism but creativity, not of lust but love, not of fear but courage, not of hate but kindness, not of greed but generosity, not of competition but cooperation, not of being served but serving, not of individualism but community, not of addiction but freedom, not of slavery to the paradigms of this world, but freedom from everything that enslaves and destroys, everything that incites fear and greed. What if we help people see how Jesus changes everything? What if we do that? Th I mean, that's it. That's what wakes me up in the morning. If that's our vision, I'm here forever. But let me tell you, if we just want to gather and sing and make sure that we all tithe enough so that the machinery of ministry keeps running, not interested. We need to reframe Christianity's reputation. Because to be blunt, we're viewed as darkness. <laughs> and we're not. We're light. Well, if you're interested in the vision, it's kind of a big deal. And you might wonder, well, where would we start? I'd say all of us have to start uh, the same way that Solomon became light. When Solomon built the temple, he said, God... Uh, with empty hands, I want to receive all of your revelation and be transformed by that revelation so that our nation becomes all that you want our nation to be. We're not a nation. We're a church. But can we, with empty hands, say, God, we want to receive all your light so that we be transformed 
so that the light can first heal us and knit our hearts together and then shine out into our city in not just accidental ways, but intentional ways. You know, into Amazon and into Swedish and into Seattle Public Schools and into, and into UW and into Seattle Pacific and into Seattle University and into every home and every neighborhood. A simple step you can take to move toward that is allowing the light of Christ in your own life to shine with greater clarity. And so uh, this isn't going away, this rule of life stuff, if you're new here. These are, just think of these as practices. But I want to encourage you to have a receiving practice and a giving practice as you begin 2019. Like, what are you going to do? Some, uh, solitude, fasting, meditating on scripture, Bible study, praying for other people? Commit to one thing consistently. And then what are you going to do, you know, outwardly? Service? Hospitality, generosity, commit to one thing and watch the light begin to shine. We'll do more with this, but that's the starting point. Jesus doesn't say, I wish you'd be the light of the world. He says what? You are. Therefore, let the light that is Christ shine with clarity. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this community that has represented you for 100 years, more than 100 years. I wanna, I wanna pray, Father, for 2019, that you would uh, allow the light that is your life within us to burst into a flame and in our life together to burst into a bonfire that would shed the light of Christ into our city so that Jesus would become characterized through his body as a community of generosity and hope and peace and mercy and reconciliation and holiness. Take us there, Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.